Hello, and welcome to The Well. As always, I am your host, Dylan Bowman. And as always, I am very glad to have you here. This week, we're going to be talking to Katie Scheid. Katie is an American ultra runner who lives in Europe. And in just the past couple of years, Katie went from being a relatively unknown runner on the scene to really, in my opinion, one of the best and most consistent athletes on the international circuit today. And even though that is the case, it still strikes me that Katie is a bit underrated, I think, especially here in her home country, where I think she's less of a household name in ultra circles than the women who primarily live and race stateside. And I think a really good example of this is in the Ultra Runner of the Year voting uh, from 2019, where Katie finished in ninth place overall, well below where I think her season should have landed her. And I'm a... You Roy voter myself, and I think it's no secret that the voting committee probably has a little bit of a bias towards performances that take place in the U.S., but this was a really great opportunity to get to know Katie a little better, given that she lives way over on the other side of the Atlantic. So in this conversation, we talk about her unique background and her consistent orientation towards the outdoors, going back to her childhood in Maine. We talk about her quick and impressive ascent in the sport, her training environment in Europe, and how that has helped her to be successful. We talk about her amazing season in 2019 and the personal project that she did this summer in 2020 that combined both trail running and mountaineering, uh, which her main sponsor on running just released a cool video about, which you can find in the show notes. So we talk about a lot of cool things. And even though Katie has already accomplished really great stuff in her short time in the sport, it's really my opinion that she has a super, super bright future. So it was great to connect with her for this conversation. So please welcome Katie Scheid. I am here with uh, with Katie Scheid, who is uh, recently returned home to the great state of Maine. Katie, how are you? How are you feeling? How's the jet lag? <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. I've been getting up pretty early, but that's been okay. Uh, there's a coffee pot here, so I've been entertaining myself in the morning. <laughs> so, are you are you in the home that you grew up in there in Maine? Yeah, I'm at home with my parents. So yeah, they haven't moved in, I don't know, since before I was born. So. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> my, uh, my wife and I live in Portland, Oregon, and her folks um, still live in the house that she grew up in that they've been in for, for 40 years. I'm sure it feels really good for you to return home from from Europe to the to the house that you grew up in. Which uh, Which town is it? Where did you grow up exactly in Maine? Um, I grew up in Lower. I'm um, in Gardner, which is near Augusta, which is an hour north of Portland. Which is okay. a bit. You're in the other Portland, right? Yeah, I'm in the other Portland. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, I've only been to Maine once. We went to a, a wedding in in Belfast of some of some of our dear friends uh, a couple of years ago, and it's a it's a really cool part of the country. But anyway, um, you know, uh, Katie, you know, I've been a fan of yours for a little while now, and I wanted to invite you on the podcast to learn a little bit more about you and and allow um, you know, especially U.S. based ultra fans to get to know you a little bit more. Of course, you're an American, you're from Maine, but you live in Europe. Um, you live in France, correct? Not Switzerland? Um, right now, I'm kind of in between Switzerland and France. Okay, um, all right. Well, I'm hoping to officially call France home very soon. Okay, cool. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit because I think that's uh, all part of kind of your uh, your interesting story and, and just you know, the places that you've lived and how that corresponds to your ascent in, uh, in the world of uh, trail and ultra running. But you know, being as a, an American who lives in France, you uh, you first popped on my radar in 2018 when you finished second at the CCC. Um, and as I was watching the coverage, I was there in, in Chamonix as well. And, uh, you know, watching the coverage and they said, oh, yeah, this is Katie Scheid. She's an American. She's running really strong in second place. And I was just wondering why I had, I had never heard your name. And, uh, you know, of course I came to learn that it was because you were both pretty new to the sport at the time, but also that, uh, you were, you were living in Europe and, um, that, you know, just by virtue of the fact that, um, I didn't have my finger on the pulse as much on the races that you had done. I just, I wasn't as familiar with you, but of course you had an amazing performance there and, and your career is really, taken off since then. And, and I've since become a fan and, and followed, um, followed closely. And, you know, last year was a particularly amazing season. And um, anyway, you know, I just feel like you're not only a great athlete now, but somebody who I think has a really bright future in the sport. And so I wanted to, uh, again, just uh, sort of tell your story a little bit, get to know you a little bit and uh, yeah, sort of uh, especially share your story with North American ultra fans so that, you know, more people can follow you and uh, be proud of all your amazing accomplishments. So first, you know, I think it'd be helpful to just kind of do some background. I know uh, we've already touched on you growing up in Maine, but can you just kind of give us a little glimpse into what your, your upbringing was like there and um, you know, what your relationship was with the outdoors and, and with sport in general as a kid? Oh uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up not super close to the mountains, actually. So it's about a two hour, an hour and a half to two hour drive to get to the Appalachians. Um, but I grew up like super active. Uh, I played like, every sport that we had in town. Um, so always in organized sports. And then on top of that, always like outside with my parents and <clears throat> grew up hiking a lot. Um, in high school, I actually backpacked the long trail, which is um, uh, goes from Massachusetts to Canada through Vermont. I backpacked that in a few different sections with my dad. So I was always spending time hiking and generally being active. Um, I took field hockey pretty seriously starting in middle high school and then was on various field hockey teams throughout the year, club teams and development leagues. And then um, so that was kind of most of my focus was on that actually at, at the beginning. 
Yeah, that, that's really cool. And you mentioned your dad, and I figured that would be an interesting thing to touch on as well. Can you got, can you talk a little bit about your guy's relationship, you know, how he kind of inspired your your sort of uh, path in, in the sport that you're on and your love for the outdoors and, and what he does currently? Because I think that's uh, actually a pretty interesting thing. Yeah, so my I grew up my with my dad working at um, a company called Delorme, which is a mapping cartography company. And um, we always had GPS devices because he's a software engineer. So he was working on the user interface for a lot of GPS um, mapping software that was then integrated into GPS, which was super new when I was a kid. So we would go geocaching a lot, actually, as a kid, which I don't know if anyone <laughs> knows geocaching, but it's like the nerdiest thing you can do outside. <laughs> explain it a little bit. I, I know what it is, but why don't you explain it? <laughs> it's basically like a treasure. But as a kid, I felt that it was a treasure hunt where you used a GPS to go find like a random Tupperware box in the woods or on a trail somewhere near a trail. Um and then you would basically leave like a toy, kind of like a toy you would get at like McDonald's or something and exchange it for a toy that was in the box. And I was very motivated by these small toys and also like really liked using the GPS to go like hunt for these boxes in the woods. So that's how we spent our weekends, <laughs> which um, I didn't realize at the time was super dorky, but um, it was very fun. So, <laughs> that's kind of that was a big motivator for me for hiking um but then uh as gps developed my dad started working on the what we now know as the inreach device um and later delorme was um, incorporated into garmin mm -hmm. uh, so now my dad actually works at garmin um, but has been employed by them longer than the company has existed. So, so interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so now he works on the on the Garmin InReach, mostly on the InReach Mini, but um, on all of the InReach um, software that's on some of their other devices as well. That's that's so cool. And when I saw you post about that, I was like, oh, what an amazing story! Because you know, I I have a Garmin InReach Mini that I just got this summer and they've sort of exploded in popularity, particularly with this whole season of COVID where people are not really racing and said they're focusing on these kind of like big mountain adventures. And they're in, in amazing tools, not only for, you know, um, navigation and communication, but also if you get yourself in a, in a bad situation out in the back country where you don't have cell phone service, um, you know, the, having the mess messaging capability, uh, is quite amazing. And then of course, having the ability to, you know, have your friends and family be able to follow you on whatever big adventures that you have just by opening up their laptops or their smartphones and uh, navigating to your sort of personal URL. So it's so cool that your dad is actually one of the sort of innovators in that department. And, and you can totally see how, you know, your background and your guys's relationship, um, you know, set you up uh, to be on this, this sort of path that you've been on. So like when you were a kid and you're like geocaching and hiking around, um, 
did you have an idea of like kind of what you wanted to be when you grew up or was this only for fun? Because you've since kind of like <laughs> taken the outdoors is not only kind of like your career as an athlete, but also, you know, we can get into this, but like your education and, you know, um, all that stuff, like you're basically, it seems like your entire life is organized around, um, you know, this, this sort of like love for the outdoors. Is that something that goes back to those early days hiking around geocaching with your old man? Yeah. I mean, at that point, I thought that being a software engineer was the coolest thing you could possibly do. (laughs) So I would always, like when we had to fill out, you know, what I want to be when I grow up, it was always software engineer. Um, Wow. Because I I thought that that to be, if you were a software engineer, that meant you got to like work with GPS and go hiking. Yeah. (laughs) Which isn't totally true, but I was very motivated by that. So yeah, that's what I wanted to be. Um, And then somehow that evolved into wanting to be a biologist at some point, because Mm -hmm. I really liked science. Um, And then when I arrived at Middlebury College for my freshman year, I took a seminar in the geology department and realized that when I said I wanted to study biology, what I actually meant is that I wanted to study geology (laughs) because I hadn't really been exposed to geology as a subject before and kind of realized like, oh, that's actually more what I'm interested in than uh, like cells. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And so, you know, you went to Middlebury, which is of course in Vermont, you're a mid kid, as they say, I have a lot of friends who, uh, who graduated from, from that uh, university, which is a a really good uh, university on the East coast of the U S. And it seems to me that that's sort of where you developed even kind of like a deeper connection with the mountains and with the outdoors, specifically through your summer job, at least from sort of what I've read. Can you explain what you were doing there and how it inspired this path that you've been on? Yeah. So, yeah, as I said, I started studying geology at Middlebury. um, And then each of my summers at Middlebury, I was working in the Appalachian Mountain Club High Mountain Hut System, which is in New Hampshire in the White Mountains, which are part of the Appalachian Mountains. Um, And there's eight huts that are each about a day hike apart. Now I'm giving my spiel. So (laughs) I've done this before. (laughs) So, um, so they're mostly directed for, or they're mostly for families from maybe like the Boston area or um, coming up for the weekend. They aren't actually intended for Appalachian Trail through hikers, although they are on the Appalachian Trail. Um, and it's basically a full service experience. So you show up, we give an evening program, we serve dinner, um, we serve breakfast, and then there's a lot of other stuff in between, like small skits and um, we like give trail advice and also the crews carry all of the fresh goods to the hut twice a week. So that involves carrying like pretty heavy weights on an old fashioned packboard um, on pretty technical terrain um, two times a week. So uh, at the end of the summer, it you, you got pretty confident um, with the packboard, uh, although we still fell on occasion. Um, yeah, so that that's kind of how I got into being comfortable, like being on trails by myself, I guess, which I didn't realize at the time, but it seems to be a step, I think, that, that can feel limiting if you haven't spent a lot of time outside. Um, just doing something like that on your own is, it's kind of a, 
a big step, I think, to to go for a hike even by yourself, which was something I was doing all all summer mm-hmm. for four summers. So yeah. That's really cool. So are those huts, are they similar to kind of the, the hut systems that we see when we travel to Europe and, you know, that are sort of sprinkled around the Alps or are they a little bit more rustic or what's the atmosphere like at the Appalachian huts? Yeah, they're pretty similar to the huts in Europe. Although in Europe, um, generally the huts are run by like an older person who kind of owns or like leases it from the country's hut system in some way. Whereas the huts we were working in was everyone was under the age of 24, I'd say. And there was five to 10 of us in each hut, depending on how many people slept in each one. And that ranged from like 40 to a hundred people, depending on the building. Wow. So you can basically picture like college dorm style life in a building in the woods was it's kind of like no parents no rules you know except (laughs) except for the fact that you are also in charge of like local search and rescue so it's kind of uh it's it's a weird balance of having so much responsibility and also like feeling like you don't have to have any responsibility so it's a tough balance but also really fun really exhausting but also like really rewarding at the end of the summer. <laughs> that's, that's such a great story. And again, just like, I'm always fascinated by people's backgrounds, um, you know, and life experiences and sort of like how it sets them up for where they are currently. And both like your, how you describe your relationship with your dad, hiking around in the mountains, doing geocaching, and then sort of like ending up with this awesome um, summer job when you were at Middlebury and the you know, clear, um, not only like how fun it must've been for you just like on a personal level, but just like how strong it made you in the mountains and how, you know, that like uh, resiliency that comes from just spending days and days and weeks out there, uh, on your own and developing skills and fitness and things have, uh, contributed to your, your success now as a trail runner. So were you actually like running trails at the time or were, were you purely just kind of like a geology interested, uh, hiker? Um, so in the huts, if, if anyone's familiar with the white mountains, they know that it would be difficult to classify moving quickly there as running because Mm -hmm. the trails are so technical. Um, yeah. So I was moving quickly. I mean, mostly with friends, we would go, um, because the huts were like a day hike apart, that meant kind of a, a half day you know, fast hike slash what I would call now run. Um, so we were going to visit friends at other huts and uh, go back and forth because if it wasn't your day to cook, then you had from nine to five free in between meals. So we were basically just spending a lot of time moving around without like training or having a goal. Just the goal was to see a friend or to get down to the valley to get a fancy lunch somewhere or something like that. But I was running in college, like um, for fitness generally. Uh, I ran, I think, two half marathons at some point at Middlebury, like the local road half marathon. So I was running with friends. I I wouldn't say I wasn't a runner. Um, I definitely was like, yeah, I'd always run for field hockey. So I I kind of maintained that and, and I liked running. I ran indoor track in high school. 
Uh, I was an 800 meter runner, which was a uh, long distance. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's really cool. And so, you know, then to kind of close out this sort of like background discussion so we can kind of get a better idea of where you are now. It, it seems like you eventually ended up in Utah for a little while. You spent some time in Nepal and then you seemingly went to graduate school in Zurich. So maybe like catch us up to speed on, on how you bounced around to those different locations to end up where you are now. Yeah, so immediately after Middlebury, I moved to Salt Lake um, to pursue a master's degree in geology. Um, and then two years later, I I moved to Switzerland, to Zurich, for my PhD in geology. Um, Nepal is where I do my field work. Uh, for my PhD okay. in geology in Switzerland. So I was actually traveling from Switzerland to Nepal. Um, and I think I've, I was trying to actually think about that the other day. I think I went five times in the last four years. Mm-hmm. This is actually my first year not going to Nepal since 2016. So, um, yeah, so I was really lucky to, that was part of the reason why I, I was interested in pursuing the PhD in Switzerland because the field work was in Nepal. Also, the it was based in Switzerland um, and the project was something I was interested in. So, um, yeah, it seemed like a really great opportunity to kind of change things up at a moment where I felt like maybe I was about to kind of settle down. Yeah. So it was kind of a, a deciding point in my life. And I could kind of feel that that was about to happen because I was about mm. to finish my master's degree and figure out if I wanted to work in Salt Lake or if I wanted to move somewhere else. And then uh, when someone offered for me to leave the country, <laughs> uh, it was hard to say no. So yeah. that's how I... So you've been in Europe now for a couple of years and what's like your focus as it pertains to geology and, and your field work in Nepal and how do you hope to kind of like apply this amazing education that you've had? Uh, so I, in my work in Nepal is focused on landslides, um, specifically landslides caused by earthquakes. Um, so I, I, I specifically study the landslides caused by the 2015 earthquake, which many people might remember, um, devastated central Nepal. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, I would like to say that I do something that like helps those communities, but actually what I work on is um, purely like scientific research and mm-hmm. theoretical. So um, I look at how uh, events like these, like these large earthquakes affect affect long-term erosion cycles, which uh, isn't like the most interesting thing to talk about on a podcast. (laughs) But I find it very interesting. We'll we'll save that for some (laughs) geology-focused podcast because I'm definitely not intelligent enough to really understand this stuff. But um, it's really cool. And I think it just kind of like fits into this 360 view of, of who you are and kind of your, your love for the outdoors and your history, just spending so much of your time outdoors and generally be being interested in the territory and landscapes that, that are around you. So I guess like 
another important thing to just kind of like nail down is then when, when was it that you started like really taking trail and ultra running seriously? Uh, was it when you arrived in, in Europe? Did you get connected with the scene there upon arrival or were you doing it more when you were in Utah or when did that become an interest of yours? Yeah, I feel like there was maybe a couple phases. Like um, if if you saw the project that I did in the Whites last summer, it was about the hut traverse. Um, so at the end of each summer working in the in the mountain huts, there was kind of a challenge that some crew members would do, which was to hike between all eight huts in less than 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And this is around 50 miles and 15,000 feet of elevation gain. And so that's something I did three times when I was working in the huts. The first time when I was 19 and I did it most of it by myself. Wow. Um, yeah. Did, did you have, did you have any idea what like trail and ultra running was at the time? Then not really. I kind yeah. of had heard of the Vermont 100. Uh-huh. I mean, I kind of knew of it, but I knew it as like a weird it wasn't like, like challenge. Yeah, you're not yeah, like interested in doing it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. It, it was purely because I was interested in doing the hut traverse. It it mm-hmm. was only for that reason. Um, so yeah, when I look back on it, I'm like, wow, that's that's really impressive. I did that. <laughs> But at the time I saw all these other people doing it too. So I didn't see it as that crazy. Um, but yeah, so after that, I, I ended up in Utah and um, didn't really have this like challenge waiting for me at the end of the summer. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty like goal oriented and like having something to work towards. So I heard about the Speedgoat 50K, which was um, at Snowbird where I was skiing and I was like, oh, that that seems like a good challenge for the summer. Uh, I could do that. I mean, it's shorter than the hut traverse, so it should be fine. Mm-hmm. So I signed up for that. And then also before that, ran another race in Utah. And um, I did really well at, the, well, I did really well at both of them, but I won the first race, mm-hmm. which was more of a local race. But I was kind of like, oh, okay, um, that's not what I was expecting. Um but I had a really good time and then also really enjoyed the speed goat. Um, but then I kind of uh, had to take a short hiatus from my running goals uh, as I was finishing my master's and then moving across the country, well, moving my things to Maine to then fly to, to Switzerland. So I had kind of felt this motivation towards maybe training a bit more in an organized way when I was in Utah but then because of my life situation at the time had to kind of stop it and then I was able to resume when I arrived in Europe um and that also at that time I met um Sharmal who is now my partner uh so it was kind of a whole combination of arriving in Europe restarting my interest in um like running more seriously and then also like quickly being welcomed into like the European running world because he was already um running at a really high level when I met him so it's kind of just like a collision of things at once um 
and I'll also say that when I arrived in Switzerland, uh, my first contact into like the European running scene was through Hilary Girardi, who yeah. was already living in France. And she also worked in the same huts and also mm-hmm. went to Middlebury. Mm-hmm. So oh. we were quick, we were quickly connected through our many, many, many mutual friends. Um, <laughs> and she convinced me to come to a couple of races when I first arrived. Um, and, and that's, yeah, that's how I met Sharma actually. And then, yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> wow. What a great story. And just to provide some context, Hilary Girardi is another American living in, in France. I believe she and her partner and Chamonix, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know her well, but again, I've sort of like followed her career and she's been a super high performing runner, sort of mostly focusing on, on sky racing. And I had no idea that she was also a Middlebury grad and, uh, and worked yeah, in the same. also is a Middlebury grad. <laughs> Mid kids all over the place, yeah. man. You guys would take <laughs> over. That's, uh, that's so interesting that she was also involved in the same kind of like hut program. And it's now, so cool to see both you guys excelling to at such a high level you know maybe at least in part due to your experience there in those in those uh backcountry huts and i'm sure all the people who manage those are uh really proud of you guys and hopefully tell all their their guests uh, about all your amazing accomplishments but <laughs> that's cool so you know you've you've been in europe you know for at least a few years now and you know you've been racing on the scene for, you know, basically since you've been there and at least in my opinion or from my sort of outside observation, it seems like you've had a really quick uh, ascent in the sport and and like you just like improved super rapidly based on your background and your experience in the mountains and your clear talent. And, um, you know, I think this was most evident last year when you had a really amazing season and um, I guess going back to that performance at CCC in 2018 where I said that you had finished second and kind of the the 12 months between CCC in 2018 and then UTMB last year in 2019 you had just an amazing 12-month run of racing and you know basically there were very few women, if any, internationally who are as successful and consistent as you were on the scene. And again, like from my perspective, living here in the U.S. and following you, I'm like, why don't more people know about Katie Scheid? And so just like a a couple of um, highlights, like I said, second at CCC, you were second at the Madeira Island Ultra Trail behind Courtney DeWalter. Uh, You won the Mont Blanc 90K uh, which is one of the you know the biggest uh, races in Europe, especially sort of pre-UTMB, middle of the summer type race, and then you were sixth at, at UTMB, all like super world class performances. You had a couple of other wins at, at smaller races around Europe, but like, how do you view like your career in the sport so far, and what do you attribute this uh, sort of consistency and, and success that you've had to? Um, well, thanks for that, <laughs> that really nice overview. Um, yeah, I think I, I feel like I've just begun really. Um, I, I, like, I still have this feeling of when I show up to races, like I have, I know I have some experience, but I also don't feel like I have all the experience I want to have, um, which is really cool for me because 
it's a sport that I see myself staying in long-term and I really enjoy like not rushing my progress and just, um, just being, as you said, being consistent and, and really my ultimate goal would just to be like really consistent and, and be proud of my training and be, um, like content with what I'm doing. And I think if I do that, then I can continue to be consistent. Um, I think I've been really lucky to have quickly joined, um, Sharma and his, um, like his contacts and like community in Europe, because as someone coming from the U S not having any contacts, I think it would be really hard. Um, I, am now part of like a really great coaching organization that um, that he was working with before I met him. And that's really focused on like long-term development as an athlete. And um, yeah, just basically making like easy, smart decisions about what you're doing and not, I think it can be easy to get sucked into racing more or um, setting like unrealistic goals. Um, and that's something I could have maybe seen myself falling victim to if I didn't have this like support group around me. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something I can really attribute um, my consistency to is just having like really good support and um, really, uh, really great other athletes that I um, surround myself with to look up to um, in our coaching group. There's, a lot of really talented um, Ironman and Xterra and um, ch- like other triathletes. And I think in ultra running, sometimes it's easier to to do too much too soon because there are so many cool races to go to and you see other people doing it. So it seems like maybe it could be an okay idea. But I think for me and also for Jarma, we've, we really take the time to like plan out each season, which races we want to do, which races we're, we care about more. Um, and yeah, mostly just taking the time to, to plan. I think that's really the key. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, being intentional and being surrounded by good athletes and good coaches. I mean, all that is like, just, I think so, so important, especially when you're trying to really maximize your potential and have that longevity, like you said. So can you describe a little bit about like what the community atmosphere is like within your group and what the the kind of coaching arrangement is? Do, Do you coach yourself or do you have somebody who helps you out with that? And what is like kind of your, that support group look like on a, on sort of like a, a practical level? Yeah. Our coaching group is headed by, um, a guy who used to be, um, an Xterra world champ. So if you know Xterra, it's like off-road yep. triathlon. Mm-hmm. Um, so he coaches both me and Sharma, um, before, uh, like when I, in 2017, 18, I guess. Um, and even last year a bit, uh, Jarmo was more coaching me because I was um, spending more time in Zurich working on my PhD in Zurich. Um, so he was able to like kind of adapt to my living situation, which was not in the mountains, um, and had a lot more time restrictions. So, 
um, that was really helpful then. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, since then, uh, yeah, so Nico's been coaching us and he also coaches other triathletes and, um, and a, at least one other trail runner, a, a couple other trail runners, I guess. But um, there's some really great, um, I mean, I can talk about like one, one triathlete who like inspires me was, uh, is a guy who's, who's also coached, um, by Nico and he used to be an Ironman triathlete and like finished in the top 10 at Kona, like overall. And now he's a master's runner, but he still like takes everything super seriously, not in a negative way, but in like a professional Mm -hmm. way. Um, and he does things with intention and like, it, I think it's just being around other athletes who are motivated by being an athlete and like bettering themselves about specific things without letting other things get in the way of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and like showing up at a race and maybe not doing really well, but if your goal was, was to, I don't know, run a certain part of the race really fast, but not worrying about what that puts you at overall, if you're happy with that, then to be happy as an athlete that you, that you met your goal. Mm. I mean, I guess I'm kind of rambling here, but no, no, (laughs) Um, no, that's great. I think it's, I think it's really interesting. And uh, like the kind of novelty of you guys being pro trail and ultra runners and being this in this environment with, with triathletes, both Xterra and Ironman athletes, do they bring anything novel to to your training that you've sort of applied to to trail and ultra running or have you been able to kind of teach them a little bit more about the sport through through your experiences yeah our coach is actually he actually runs um trail races now so he he's like very aware of the sport and grew up in the mountains like he grew up in a mountain hut so he's I think what's great is that he has kind of, well, he of course has a multi-sport approach to trail running because he's used to triathlon where the entire thing is multi-sport. Um, and he also does schemo, which, um, both of us do too. So he's really able to help us, um, figure out how to incorporate the fact that in the winter we spend most of our training on skis and in the summer we spend quite a bit of time on bikes and also try to do other like climbing or more like scrambling type outings. Um, so all of that, I think also helps kind of to the long, to the, to the longevity, <laughs> I feel longevity. Yeah. longevity yeah. Of, <laughs> of, of us as runners. I think it's important to have other um, sports that you're interested in well, you don't have to be interested in other sports but for me personally like there's other sports that I'm interested in and you don't have to ignore that mm-hmm. um, if you want to be if you want to improve your running there's ways to incorporate that that, that can help you be a, a better runger, runner for a longer period of time totally uh no it's a it's a really good lesson and something that has been exemplified you know with obviously the best athletes in the world with, you know, Killian being the obvious example and Francois Dane spends most of the winter on skis too, barely runs and having that kind of well-rounded athletic experience and approach not only makes you more comfortable out in the mountains, but then also probably when you put the skis away for the season and start focusing more on, on running and scrambling and mountaineering, you're like, 
I guess maybe a little bit more fresh, a little bit um, just kind of like uh, more excited about uh, this different training that you're going to be doing uh, based on the different seasons. And I think absolutely, as you said, I mean, you're still very young and um, have only been on the scene for a few years, but it's great to hear that you're already thinking about um, you know, being in the sport long term and having that good community and the good leadership with uh, with a coaching group um, will only contribute to that. So, to kind of talk about UTMB last year, which uh, of course is by pretty much I think everybody's estimation the most important race in the world and the and the biggest stage <laughs> on which you can compete in trail and ultra running. You had a really great run. I mean, it was your, I think your first hundred miler, if I'm not mistaken, and you finished sixth and, um, I think you were the youngest, the youngest athlete in the top 10. Uh, tell us about that race. How did you feel about that performance? Yeah, I would agree. UTMB is definitely the, <laughs> the, the biggest race of the year. Um, it's also fun for me because I don't always get to, to see other Americans. Um, so so having a bunch of Americans like flood into Chamonix is, um, <laughs> it's, it's crazy, but also it's cool to, to be able to see everyone in one place. Um, yeah, it was my first hundred miler, um, significantly longer than any other race I had done. So that was my biggest, um, unknown going into the race. Um, I, I was very happy to finish six, I think that's like, it's something to really be proud of. Um, and I was also really proud of the fact that I had some pretty low moments and lower than I'd experienced in any race before yeah. and was still able to like keep moving and <laughs> get back to Chamonix. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's, I still have a lot of work to do on my UTMB. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my UTMB, uh, perform, or I don't know, not performance, my like yeah. execution, I guess is oh, the better okay. word. Yeah. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of room for me to grow there. So in some ways it was a bit disappointing, but also knowing that I'm here for the long run and that I have many more chances. Well, you know, I thought that, and then it was canceled this year. So. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah, yeah. But I have many more opportunities. Yeah. I should have many more opportunities to, uh, to do even better. So that's yeah. something that motivates me for, for another UTMB. Yeah, no, it's uh, obviously like sixth place is, is a solid performance, but of course, you know, we're always looking for that kind of like perfect day and it's always ever elusive. And the fact that, you know, maybe you did struggle, but still make it back to, to Chamonix with a, a proud sixth place finish. I mean, that's an amazing place to build from. And, you know, it's rare for somebody to kind of nail it on that stage on their first try. And, um, you know, it seems like, um, you know, you have now the experience to go back and, uh, and give it a, a better shot next time. And, you know, the, the American women in particular, have been incredibly uh, successful there, representing our home country uh, really proudly. And uh, I'd love to see you uh, give that another another go. So what specifically do you think you could have done better during the race or what went wrong? What did you learn from it that you think uh, you can do better next time? 
I think it was less of like a during the race um, thing and more that the week, as you know, the week before is um, quite overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot that has to happen, um, especially if you have a bunch of sponsors who are all involved in UTMB and mm-hmm. there's um, things you need to do as an athlete uh, for sponsors. Um, and then also prepping for your first hundred mile race amidst all of that is, um, not that easy. Um, and then also, uh, doing that with someone else who is also doing that, uh, is not, it's, uh, Jarmo and I are really lucky in most ways that we like can share tons of training. We share like travel schedules. We can share Mm -hmm. basically everything the only parts where it can become difficult is when <laughs> we're prepping for a race or in the immediate ap- aftermath of a race yeah. where someone needs to like drive or <laughs> take control of the situation. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, I think there was just like a lot going on at once that I wasn't prepared to deal with. Yeah. Um, and I think I, I got to the start line, like kind of exhausted and yeah, just couldn't, didn't have the capacity to like hold it together. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm thinking more and more that that's where it started from. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's so funny. And this comes up all the time, you know, when people who I talk to, who, you know, maybe had a disappointing performance at UTMB specifically, it's always like, Oh man, like on Wednesday, I had like four hours of like expo appearances that I had to be at. And I mean, it sounds like the most pretentious thing ever to complain about of like, yeah, I've got to do all these sponsor things and sign all these posters for people. But like when you're preparing for what is the world championship effectively in in our sport, uh, any one of those kind of like little things uh, does make a difference. And also with the 6 p.m. start on Friday, you know, like the whole week is just kind of like strange. And then you like, if you do arrive on that start line, just a little bit tired or at least not like, okay, here we go into the night. And uh, we have an absolutely enormous challenge ahead of ourselves. If you're not just like desperate to put yourself through it or lack any little bit of energy, you definitely end up a little compromised. So yeah, I think, you know, the, you know, as athletes continue to go back to UTMB and it continues to, to grow on the path that it is, I think that's going to be one thing that people really try and manage better is front loading those sponsorship obligations and, you know, maybe, um, you know, bypassing a couple of them if, if possible as well. But that's, that's really cool. And, um, again, um, congratulations on that. It was, I mean, sixth place is, is really solid and a great place to build from. And this, you talked about German many times here, who's, who's your partner and um, also a really great runner. And I'd love to have him on the podcast here at some point as well. But um, you guys did it this year is of course a very strange year. We had very uh, few opportunities to, to actually compete and we were forced to kind of come up with our own little projects. And as luck would have it, your main sponsor today on running released a cool video uh, called Taming Giants that sort of um, followed you and German on an awesome adventure that you guys put together this summer. Um, Maybe before we get into the details of that, what did you have planned for this season and how to, how did this idea come together that became the Taming Giants project? 
Yeah, so we actually were planning this pro- this project had a very different outline uh, <laughs> <laughs> many months ago. Uh, so we had planned to link together um, three races and then um, climb the mountain associated with each race. So we were going to do Lavaredo and then climb the Tracim and then do Sierra Zinal, climb the Matterhorn, UTMB and the Mont Blanc which we were super excited about. We thought it'd be like a really cool way to spend some extra time in the area of each race um, and kind of enjoy like a kind of a mountain outing around each ultra. Well, Sierra Zinal isn't an ultra, but around yeah. each trail race. And then uh, one by one, each of those races were canceled. So we thought, okay, we've still got this project. On was still super supportive of like um, helping us with with keeping the project alive in some way. So we kind of thought, okay, what we really wanted to do was um, climb the Matterhorn and the Mont Blanc. And so we were thinking about those two summits um, because I had never done them. Sharmal had already done both of them, but it was kind of like, you know, the American tourist in in the Northern Alps, me. so we then we remembered or we thought of the fact that the hot route actually connects Zermatt and Chamonix um, and it's a really famous ski touring route in the spring um, but we we knew that you could also hike and run on it in the winter or in the summer um, if the conditions were right so normally early summer while there's still um, enough snow on the glaciers so then we thought, well, okay, that makes sense. Like, let's climb the Matterhorn, then run the hot route to Chamonix and climb the Mont Blanc. Mm-hmm. So that was the new project. Um, and we were super excited about it and uh, spent a bunch of weeks in the area, uh, scouting everything, making sure like glaciers were in the right conditions for us um, and checking like what time of day we would need to pass and planning all of that. Um, and then when we went to recon the Matterhorn, it was just like a huge mess. There was way too much snow and ice. Um, we got up to the first hut on the, on the Italian side, um, Mm -hmm. one day and just realized like that based on when the upcoming weather window was, we just weren't going to be able to do the Matterhorn, which I think was a really smart decision for us Mm -hmm. because we just, we just weren't ready for it. And Mm -hmm. we were like, okay, we'll add that to the bucket list of like something to come (laughs) back to. So anyway, to get to to the short of the story, um, there's also another 4,000 meter peak next to the Matterhorn called the Brighthorn. So Instead, because the weather window was approaching where we, we really needed four days of good of good sun to be able to do this safely, uh, we left like a day or two after we made that decision, like kind of a bit at the last minute because <laughs> we saw that it was just going to rain for the following like week or two after that. Yeah. But anyway, we left Servinia, Italy. Um, then we summited the Brighthorn, which is um, 4,100 meters. Um, then we ran from Zermatt, well, Zermatt is at the base of the Brighthorn, um, to Chamonix across the hot route, which is 120K. Um, and it's mostly not really on trails. It's, you're just on glaciers because it is a ski route. Um, mm-hmm. And then you're also like in a lot of kind of paths. I wouldn't really describe that as a trail. It's really a lot of glacier debris. Mm-hmm. So a really cool way to run sort like, run some stuff. Um, we had pretty heavy backpacks. They were like six kilograms, um, mm-hmm. with 
with water. So, um, and like all of our gear for crossing glaciers. And then we showed up in Chamonix and climbed the, the Mont Blanc out and back in, in a day. So it was kind of a bunch of big adventures all like <laughs> together in, in one ultra adventure. So what were the, what were the stats on the whole thing in terms of distance and vertical and, and all that stuff? So the stats were, um, I'm sure you've got that saved on your, on your Garmin I, inreach. I'm like, I'm like, uh, I should double check the stats on that. Um, it was around 190 K and 15,000 feet of elevation. Wow. 15,000 um, meters probably is what you mean. Meters. Sorry. Yeah. You're confusing me because I'm in America right now trying to speak in the metric system yeah, yeah. <laughs> in meters. Yeah. 15,000 meters. Um, yeah. But I, I think that doesn't even, those stats don't even really do justice to like the fact that so much of that was on glaciers and not really on trails. And yeah. we also were forced to stop in a few places because we knew we couldn't cross certain glaciers um, too late in the day because mm. the, some of the snow bridges could be weak. So there was kind of some, like for us as runners, like awkwardly placed stops in there, um, uh-huh. but that were necessary for safety so mm-hmm. it gave us a chance to like eat some good food actually <laughs> yeah awesome well it sounds like such a cool adventure and again i'll point everybody to to watching the the short film that that on put together um because it does kind of highlight your guys's versatility as as athletes and being able to not only be great ultra runners but summit these amazing mountains in the alps that require actual uh kind of at least competence in in the mountains and glacier travel and and things like that it i think goes back to your background of you know just spending a lot of time outdoors and and also your versatility as an athlete and um i think a lot of people can learn from that so i'll link to that in the show notes so everybody can go watch it for themselves to to get inspired by your guys's adventure and then it seems like later in the summer you you finally did have the opportunity to race um at this at a, a race that i think is held kind of in southeastern france the uh, ultra trail Cote, Cote d'Azur. and um you you won the race you you're uh seventh overall and uh it seemed like uh Germain also had an amazing day um tell us about that race how did it play out for you and uh how was it to be able to line up at a at a start line and um share that with the community again yeah uh so we can call it UTCAM the Ultra Trail Coast Azure American Tour uh as so yeah, UTCAM is a race in Southeast France. Um, it's really close to where we live in France um, and passes through the, the same mountain range as the mountains that we live in. It's just one valley. We say it's not exactly where we live, but it's one valley away. It's pretty close. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so generally the same, it's all the same people that, that we would know at home. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, I think so it's a hundred and it was 130 K, um, 8,000 meters over 8,000 meters of elevation gain. But honestly, this course is like the most technical ultra I have ever raced. Um, mm. the trails around, um, Southern France are just, they're not, uh, buffed by the UTMB crowds. <laughs> so <laughs> they're super rocky. Things are really loose. Uh, 
you get a mix of like being in the hot like Riviera sun, but then also being up pretty high, you go over 2000 meters um, at some point. So it's uh, a crazy mix to all have in 130K. Um, and I really truly believe anyone who finishes that race is like, kudos to them because it's super hard. I mean, really? the last descent is, yeah, the last descent is off trail, like through this like grassy, rocky, <laughs> steep slope. It's just, I it's, hate it. I hate it when race directors do that, you know, like right at the end, it's like, it's why? It's really hard on the toes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we were both super excited that we were going to get to still race an ultra. We were able to race a 40 K, um, also nearby home. Mm -hmm. That was part of the golden trail national series. Um, so we had raced already, but not an ultra, which is obviously completely different in terms of like planning and preparation. Um, and Sharmal's parents were doing both of our, uh, crewing. So Sharmal's mom was my crew, um, which was pretty funny. Um, she's actually crewed for me quite a bit. So we're, she's kind of used to it now. She really like has the run of the aid stations and how to lay out my stuff. So, that's so who, who was crewing for him? <laughs> you you stole his, oh, okay. So <laughs> mom, mom and dad, yeah. he each had responsibilities. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Yeah. So we had the whole, the whole family team. Um, but yeah, I mean, we had the, because of all the cancellations, this was one of the few races left. So there was actually quite a competitive field. They had gotten a bunch of Spaniards to come. So in the women's field, we had, um, Azara, um, Garcia. Garcia. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was like pretty looking forward to racing with her because I know she's super strong. Mm -hmm. And then there's also some good French runners, Marilyn Nakash, um, who's done well at, at some of the UTMB races. Um, and yeah, so I, I had some good competition. There was also a bunch of strong Spanish men too for Charmal mm -hmm. to race with. Um, but yeah, the, I was really looking forward to like having a race because uh, Azara and Marilyn were there um, and some other runners as well. But after, I guess, I had the lead from the beginning and uh, at the first like real aid station, I I was told I had like a pretty good gap on, on second, who was Azara at that point. And I was like, oh, okay, well, let's see, like maybe she'll catch up because I knew there was kind of a flat section coming and she's pretty speedy on like uh, the non, like the less technical parts. Uh, but then the next big aid station, uh, she had rolled her ankle, I think a bunch of times um, and she, she had to stop. And then a few aid stations later, I also learned that Marilyn had to stop. So <laughs> I mean, it's a testament to how difficult the trail was. I yeah. think I was really lucky that I had seen the whole trail ahead of time. So I think that was uh, really, really a big advantage, um, knowing how difficult it was, like just being mentally prepared for like, okay, mm. this is going to be super hard. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, uh, unfortunately for me, it wasn't that eventful. Um, <laughs> and there actually weren't even, I didn't even run with any men at yeah. all. So it was really just like a Katie's big day out in the Southern Alps. <laughs> well, those, those days are really fun too. I mean, at least you yeah. got to, at least you got to pin a, pin a bib on and, and it, yeah. 
push yourself through a, a long, arduous day in the mountains. I mean, I would kill for a day like that right now. It's yeah, been... no, I, it was definitely cool. Um, and then, of course, you know, sometimes it's nice to not be stressed in the middle of the race. Like, <laughs> totally, just yeah. keep moving without, like, the impending fear of someone catching up behind you. Yeah, that's, uh, but, that's... yeah, I mean, it was cool because we know so many people in the area. And um, I... Yeah, people there know my like know my name now. I mean, in yeah. France, I'm Katy, not Katie, but you know, I still respond to that. So. <laughs> cool. Well, and again, you mentioned um, just in passing uh, that that Germain also had a, a good race, and it's probably true that you both were able to see the course ahead of time, and he absolutely crushed it as well. And having both his mom and dad there supporting and crewing for you two. Individually, uh, I would assume that you probably had word at some point along the course that he was also having a great day and and well ahead of the competition. That did that give you um, any sort of like good vibes as you were going through your own little vision quest? And um, did you guys have a good celebration afterwards after you were both uh, victorious? Yeah, totally. Whenever I like. Whenever I get like good news of Charmel during a race, it's always like a boost, no matter what kind of state I'm in. Um, so I learned that he he had been running with um, two Spaniards, so Saeed and um, Pere, uh, for the first like third of the race, I guess. And then when I came into one of the big aid stations in the middle, someone or I think his mom told me that he had a 15 minute lead on them. So I was like, whoa, okay, nice. he really <laughs> like. Yeah. Uh, he did something. So yeah. that's really cool. And yeah, I, I also know that he's, uh, he runs really consistently. So when I hear something like that, I'm like, okay, it's going to be okay. Like yeah. I'm confident in, in that. Um, and yeah, we actually, our friends got married the next day. So <laughs> we actually showed up to a wedding like zombies. So that was our celebration. <laughs> <laughs> so fun. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> actually, the uh, the the only time I've ever been to Maine was the day after TDS in 2018. We flew from Geneva to Boston, drove to Belfast for a wedding that weekend. So I actually was watching wow. your your CCC run like on my phone, like in the car driving from uh, from uh, Boston to Belfast. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Wow. <laughs> That's so cool. And so just to like kind of maybe one last question on on this sort of like relationship dynamic and, um, you know, you both having high ambitions and actually like competing often in the same races. I, I remember you were both doing Madeira Island Ultra Trail last year. You both did UTMB. You both did this UTCAM race. Um, what's the like uh, any kind of uh insights into you know how it might be easy or difficult sometimes like does one of you get a little bit more nervous or is one of you a little bit more uh maybe detail oriented don't want to be distracted before the race how's that dynamic work when you're both uh have such high ambitions and, and doing a lot of the similar races yeah i think actually at this point we've almost done like 100% the same races since we started dating. So, I mean, with some exceptions, obviously, but yeah, basically any race we're at, we're both there. Mm -hmm. Um, which yeah, as I mentioned is most of like, I would say 99.9% .9 awesome. 
Um, <laughs> but there are totally moments where you're like, wow, I wish that I could just like lay on the couch and maybe someone yeah. else would make me dinner or, yeah, yeah. or the other way around or yeah. like, uh, you don't get to be like the princess all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think we, we definitely have different ways of preparing for races and, um, our like emotional and mental state before races is different, which I guess people experience with mm-hmm. other things in life with their partners. Um, so it's something we've gotten better at, like being aware of and like being like, okay, it's three days before the race. Uh, I know that maybe he, he likes to be, he gets like a bit quieter and I like need to talk more (laughs) Uh the opposite direction. (laughs) So so I, I've tried to be like more respectful of like, okay, I'm gonna, I realize the race is coming. Like I can take these three days to, you know, be aware of like, okay, I'm just going to be in my own like pre-race world for a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, or just be understanding if like things go wrong. I think we both have enough experience being at races together to kind of predict what's going to happen with each other. Um, and I think it's gotten a lot better now because, um, I, now that I've been around races more, I'm like, understand and can speak more French and can like deal with my own race better then there's like less pressure on him to like help me with things because I do still need help with things sometimes like contacting people easily in French or like Uh I don't know little things that maybe you don't think about um Mm -hmm. that don't come up until you know right before the race and then you're asking for help from someone who is like already stressed with their own stuff yeah Um, but yeah I think every time we actually were able to like implement things more seamlessly and I mean the fact that and like all of that is so tiny compared to everything else that being together and racing together gives us so that's just like a minor thing at the very end but yeah yeah yeah, I mean it is it seems like just from an outside observer's perspective that it would just be so special to, I mean, obviously sometimes like one person has a good day and one person has a bad day, you know, one person might get nervous. One person might be less nervous, but then like when it goes well and you both win like at UT cam or when you're able to enjoy a project like you did um, with the taming giants uh, that you did this summer, when you can do that stuff together, um, it seems like that would just be really special uh, dynamic, you know, in, in a partnership. So that's, that's really cool that you guys are able to do that. So kind of winding down, I just have a couple, couple more uh, sort of small, quick questions for you. And the first is I'm genuinely curious about, your main sponsor on running, which is of course a Swiss brand and uh, at least one of, if not the fastest growing brands in in the world of running right now. How did you get connected with on running and how are you collaborating with them um, to, you know, be a better athlete yourself and to help them out? Um, Yeah. On is a super, super awesome. uh, Quickly growing young run, running company. Mm-hmm. Um, and for us they're it's really interesting for us because they're kind of just getting into trail running and outdoors. Um, they had their first trail running shoes only a couple years ago, but they are like, so, um, motivated to 
to really make good products that they are they they ask us questions a lot and really value our input and i think you'll see that as um some of the newer shoes come out that i can't really talk about but <laughs> that are really great so uh you'll see that in the next few years as more um trail running shoes come out and you might see that there's more like outdoor products coming out um, outdoor oriented apparel that's also um super functional and really um that we we actually wore a lot of the new stuff in the project itself and some of it is really actually great for mountaineering and I don't think that was their primary intention, but um, when we were talking to them about different parts of like the apparel and the footwear that really worked for us, I think they kind of like just nailed some stuff, um, not accidentally, but kind of like with a slightly different intention, but yeah. just have really high quality products all the time that you can kind of rely on it for anything. Yeah, cool. And yeah, young company. And it seems like they've got sort of the, the attitude of maybe like underdog mentality and that, you know, and with, with the help of, of you and other athletes can, can make a difference and make a splash in, in all those different sports, whether it's, you know, trail and ultra running, road running, or maybe even getting into outdoor and mountaineering. So that, that's really cool. And I, I thought that was interesting just being, you being, you know, in Europe and living in Switzerland or France or, or both, whatever it is. And them being a Swiss brand, it's a, yeah, I think that you will start to see them in the U S more. Um, they've definitely been in Switzerland for a long time because Swiss people love Swiss things. Right. But, um, yeah, they're they're, growing a lot in the U S right now too. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, Katie, last question for you. I appreciate all your time. It's been super fun to to sit down and chat with you and get to know you a little bit better. Um, and it's just a, a basic question um, of just like kind of what what's your future plans? What are your ambitions in the sport? Assuming we experience some level of normalcy in the world in the next couple of years, what are some of your big goals going going forward that we can watch for you and cheer for you at? Um, I mean, UTMB is always like the <laughs> overarching goal, right? <laughs> That's something I appreciate about you, Dylan, because you also really like UTMB and like <laughs> really see how, uh, like you consider it like a really important race, which I think it is. Um, yeah. especially if you've ever been there, you can see that um, in person. Um, but yeah, UTMB is always like the big overarching goal. Um, but then yeah, I, I really like trying different things. Um, I'm not someone who wants like, who wants to be like put in a hundred K technical terrain box. Mm-hmm. That's something I like, but also I like training for like road races. I like train for, we, we train for a 10 K every winter. Last year I had intended to run a road marathon, but had a ski accident like three days before. So uh. Um, I'm hoping to run a road marathon this year to make up for that. Um, I like running cross country races with like our, our track training club. So basically I, I don't have like a super specific goal other than UTMB, but just (laughs) finding, I really enjoy like finding things that I think I can improve at as an athlete and then focusing on that and trying to improve that, even if it's something that maybe isn't exactly trail running, but really any type of running can help you with trail running. I mean, I was just listening actually to your interview with Tom Evans uh, the other day and I was like, yeah, I really, 
it's really resonates it. with me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, mean, I mean, I don't run a 103 half marathon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, totally. I mean, I was so impressed with him and, and you have a very similar attitude. And, and for me as, you know, an aging guy on the scene, it makes me so happy because when I was coming up in the sport, nobody had that attitude, you know, it was like, oh, I'm going out for a six hour jog, you know, like this is going to be, you know, kind of like how I get as fit as possible. And, you know, obviously we all love our six hour jogs and there's absolutely a place for those within the context of an intelligent training strategy, particularly for something like UTMB. But if you do cross country races, if you do train for a 10 K, if you do try and do a road marathon, like it just makes you a more versatile runner and a more versatile athlete. And then you can apply those skills or that efficiency onto the trails and also sort of come, come give yourself a break from the trails and come back with like a renewed enthusiasm and just like a deeper kind of like well of energy that you can dig from when you are at UTMB. So yeah, I'm, I'm but super, I also don't feel like you have to um, like ignore trail running to train for a 10 K on the yeah, road yeah, because no. we were training for a marathon by doing like basically all of our volume on skis, mm. but then still putting in like good track workouts. Like you don't, it's obviously not like a hundred percent ideal, but yeah. for, for still maintaining the balance of like, I really love skiing and I would like to try a road marathon. I think it's a good balance. Yeah. Well, it's great. And again, it makes me uh, super optimistic for the future of the sport in general, but also just like your future as an athlete. And, um, you know, you've really risen to, I think, you know, pretty much the highest level um, in just a couple of years and with a little bit more experience and just like with, um, you know, yeah, just yeah, just some more, um, long races under your belt. And with the attitude that you have, I think really the sky is the limit. So Katie, I I'm super appreciative of your time and, um, I'm super hopeful that this gives uh, more people some insights into, into who you are and to, um, you know, what you have planned in the future. And again, I'd encourage everybody to take a look at that video that on running put up today. I'll link to that in the show notes, um, for the awesome visuals of your guys's adventure this summer. And, um, yeah, again, appreciate your time and look forward to, uh, following your career going forward and, and rooting for you to be the next American woman to, uh, be victorious at UTMB. Oh, wow. <laughs> no pressure. Big, big shoes to fill. <laughs> Thank you, Katie. I hope you guys really enjoyed that one. I hope you are now big fans of Katie's. If you weren't familiar with her, I hope you will now follow along on her journey into what is, I'm sure, going to be a very, very bright future. If you do want to follow along, please navigate to the show notes where you can find a link to Katie's Instagram account, where you can give her a follow, let her know if you enjoyed the podcast. If you have a spare second, you could leave me a rating or review in your favorite podcast platform, which I always 
really enjoy reading and which I always really appreciate. And thank you guys always for listening. It really does make me very happy. We've got another great episode coming next week. So we'll talk to you more then. Okay. Love you. Bye.